Welcome back to an all new, all different aim for the bushes. I'm your podcast person, Pavlo, also known as JPav, also known as Pav, also known as Pavi. And today we're talking about the end of the Republic. Which Republic and what end? Well, if you didn't read the episode description, because this time it's not in the title. Normally I say if you didn't read the, the, the episode title and the description, you know, so if you just read the title... I can forgive you, but if you read both and you still don't know, that I can't forgive. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get into it in a second. Basically, we're talking about Germany after the end of the First World War and before the start of the Second World War. So we're going to be looking at Hitler's rise to power. And this has been a topic that has interested me for a while, mainly because it's something we like never talk about. I mean, I or this podcast is based in in Canada. So, I mean, we learn about the Second World War, but obviously we don't get into like the larger politics of the German state at that time beyond like eventually Germany lost the First World War. And then, you know, they went through like a Great Depression. I mean, the whole world went through a Great Depression, but, you know, you have Germany with an even greater depression and they experience hyperinflation. And then eventually that creates the conditions for Hitler to come into power. And, you know, Nazis, bad, evil, uh, Second World War, Holocaust, right? All, all, all that stuff. But we've never looked at how specifically Hitler came in, in, into power. Like, how did he end up in that job? How did he become like the chancellor and leader of Germany? Because one of the stats you may have heard, I know I heard this a whole bunch, whenever people talk about different political extremes that kind of like take over an area or a country or a state was that the Nazis only ever got like as a party only ever got like 37% of the vote. So I'm just like, well, how, like if it wasn't like popular support, you know, it wasn't like a coup that happened because sometimes that's what happens. Like in other countries, I think this year, Myanmar prior, like in the past, and off the top of my head, Greece had a bunch of military dictatorships. When you think of like the French Revolution, if you want to go back even further, right, it's like a kind of a coup. Well, in this case, by like the, the lower classes, I suppose. Right. But there's like an event, like if you're taking the French Revolution, for example, there's an event like the storming of the Bastille that kind of like what kicks off the French Revolution. Obviously, there's a bunch of circumstances that happened beforehand. But in the case of of Germany, Prior to the Second World War, you know, I, it's just like one day Hitler becomes chancellor and that's it. Like I said, 37, 37% of the vote. So it was always something that was like murky to me and I never understood it. The one day I listened to a podcast called, oh, was it Hardcore History with Dan Carlin? So go, go look it up. The only thing about his podcast is that he, I don't think this episode's available anymore. And I haven't looked recently, so I don't know how far back it goes, but he does like different historical events and he talks about their history, but really gives like an in-depth look. So sometimes episodes like are four hours long and there's like six parts to it. <laughs> so it's like really long because like I said, it's, it's, it's in-depth. It's very detailed. And most of the time it's interesting. So I believe he did cover this because it's been a while since I listened to his uh, to this podcast. But I did my own like further reading into it after listening to it because it, it finally kind of like answered that question. Well, how exactly did Hitler come to power? Now, if you're someone who's a World War II buff or you took it like in school, like in university, and, like you 
majored in history or you took a course about it, then maybe this is explained. But I think for the common average regular Joe, it's, it's like you don't really know much more beyond, okay, eventually this happened, right? So that was a bit of a longer intro, but before we actually get into the topic right away, but first, our non-legal legal disclaimer, which is simply that the opinions that we express are simply that, just our opinions. So you can agree with us and you can disagree with us. We're not saying that we hold the ultimate truth or that only our viewpoints are the correct viewpoints. So with that out of the way, let's let's kind of let's kind of take it back now to the, the the topic at hand, which I said moments ago is the end of the Republic. So this is the end of the Weimar Republic, which is the German state that emerges at the end of the First World War. So this is a, in case you haven't caught on yet, this is a, a little bit of a history episode. So if you like history, you're in luck. If you don't like history, I'm sorry. Um, come back to another episode when I'm ranting about something that annoys me, which there will be more of that on the way. So don't worry if that's what you come here for. During the First World War, right, if you remember anything about what you learned in history class, right? Germany was an empire, right? You had the German, and I guess you can call it a kingdom if you want to consider an empire similar as a kingdom, right? You had the Kaiser, which is the German word for emperor. Well, basically it's like Caesar, right? Like of Julius Caesar fame. Because I guess you could argue throughout history, there have been many... I guess states that have claimed to be the continuation of the Roman Empire. This is a small tangent into the word Kaiser. So the 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 leader, the emperor of the Roman Empire, was known as a Caesar or Kaiser in 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 German. And I guess you could also make the argument that it was pronounced Kaiser in Latin or in English, whatever. Right? It's the same like in the Russian Empire, the Tsar. That's how like Russians pronounce Caesar in, in, in their language there. So, so had Kaiser Wilhelm, I believe the second, who was the last emperor of the German Empire. Uh, so right before the end of the First World War, uh, there was an actual German revolution before, before the official end in November of 1918. So the, the, the Kaiser was overthrown like a few days before November 11th. So the First World War, if you're not aware, ended basically, I believe the armistice itself was signed uh, November 11th, 1918. And so if you're in Canada, you know this. If you're in the UK, you know this. In the US, maybe you don't know this, but because I don't think you, in, in the States, they celebrate Remembrance Day. That's why Remembrance Day is November 11th. And that's why at 11, 11, uh, you know, you have the minute or two minutes of silence there to commemorate the end of the First World War, because obviously it was a huge war, a uh, very bloody war, uh, lots of lives lost in all parts of the world uh, because this is like the first kind of like modern war where you have like machines, well, like guns that could do so much damage so fast, right? Because this is like the advent of the machine gun. That's, that's basically the technological turning point in warfare for this war. Because prior to this, you had like rifles and like muskets and stuff, you know, which could shoot like, I'm not, I'm not a gun expert, but one bullet at a time roughly and now you have something like the machine gun which can shoot thousands of bullets and you can mow down thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people in uh in no time basically that's why you got the development of trench warfare because that it was so new it's like well we don't know because armies would stand right and face each other 
So either they would charge at each other if they had hand-to-hand combat. Well, this is before the advent of guns. You know, you had arrows and stuff like that, but and other siege weapons, but besides the point. But basically, warfare up to that point had you had two armies and they would have their rifles or muskets pointed at each other. And they would kind of like take volleys, which is taking a shot. And then like the next, the other side would respond until there was a breakdown. And then one side would charge the other once you broke their lines and all that stuff. Like I'm not a military strategist, but that's the gist of it. That's what, that's all you need to know, really. So you'd like, you'd meet at a field. That's where you would decide the battle. The battle would normally be like, I don't know, an hour or something. <laughs> and then, okay, you got your wounded and, and you're dead. And then you know, you called it a day and you went home. Obviously that's uh not 100% how it worked, but that, that gives you a rough idea. So in the First World War, in the Great War, that's what the thinking was, right? But then in terms of like the approach to strategy, but then you have machine guns come about and they change everything because now you can mow down rows and rows of people. And so the idea of just charging your army or having a line of people, a line of soldiers didn't work anymore because they could all get mowed down in seconds. Uh, and if you're on the side that has the machine gun, you're looking pretty good because they don't have one. And then if you if you do have two sides with machine guns, it's like, well, <laughs> everyone's getting mowed down. Obviously, that gets you nowhere. So what had developed was, OK, we're going to dig. We're going to dig into the ground because obviously if we're below ground. We're safe from any bullets that may come. And so there was a, like a stalemate for most of the war was, was stalemates. Uh, because no one could really get across no man's land, which is the barren land that would be between the two the, the two trenches of like, obviously, if you're in the Western Front, the German and the Allied side. But eventually there was a breakthrough. The Allies prevailed well, in the West. And, you know, they were marching towards Germany. And then Germany was like, nah, uh, we're going to we're going to surrender. Well, politically in the German state, there was a revolution Kaiser was overthrown, and then this new government that took over was like, okay, we don't really, we don't have the resources to continue the war, so we're going to sue for peace. So that's basically what happened at the end of the First World War. So it was a new republic that had come out to replace the old German Empire. And so obviously this republic would have to deal, this new government would have to deal with the consequences of losing the war or like surrendering or pursuing peace talks. Because what they did was the government, before they did, they said they went to the military leaders and this is going to come up later. That's why I bring it up now. They went to the military leaders and they said, do we have a chance to win the war if they advance on our state? So if they advance on Germany and the military was like, now nah, we're exhausted. Like we have like no supplies. Uh, we have like no men and the men that we do have are like not motivated because it's been four years of this like grueling agonizing painful war so they had like no spirit so i was like no we're not in any condition to fight like if, if fighting because there's like a small ceasefire it's like if fighting resumes like we're gonna be toast so they're like okay let, let's go for peace then and so they did so in this new government, I'm going to set it up for you a little bit, best of my understanding, because like I said, I'm not a historian, <laughs> nor am I like a military strategist or, or expert along those lines, but I did a little bit of research on this one. So in this new, in this new republic, the, you had a president and you had a chancellor. The president had a similar role to uh, the Kaiser of the previous German Empire. So what the president did was in this government, he selected the chancellor, and we'll get to the chancellor in a second. 
and like the government cabinet. And so the so the president could select roles basically to fill in the government from uh, the elected parties. But any of his choices had to be ratified by the Reichstag, which is like the German parliament. So basically the way the, the constitution was set up is like the president couldn't just do whatever he wanted. It had to be approved by those in parliament. So it was supposed to be like a check on, on, the, on the power of the president, you could argue. So if the president wanted to nominate someone for a role or appoint someone to a role, it had to be approved. So if the, the parliament didn't approve, obviously there'd have to be more debate back and forth, or uh, the president would have to find someone else to fill the role that the parliament would accept if no other deal like could be had. So the chancellor, the chancellor, his role basically was to oversee like the functions of the government. So he was kind of like more responsible for the day-to-day happenings of like what the government did. Whereas the president, like I said, he appointed stuff, but he would also like approve uh, like laws and all that stuff. So it's kind of like, you can kind of think of it like the governor general slash the queen in like UK style parliaments where the governor general or the queen technically can dissolve parliament. It technically uh, appoints the prime minister and technically signs laws into existence. I say technically because the queen and her representative, aka the governor general or lieutenant governor if it's a provincial uh, legislature, uh, these are like ceremonial duties or roles that, that, that the queen fulfills. But in this case, for, for uh, the Weimar Republic, it, it wasn't just ceremonials like that. It was like a serious role, something they were supposed to do to the best of their like ability it wasn't simply like a rubber stamp ceremonial thing now. Because like, as we mentioned, or, well, at the time of this recording, it's been recorded, but it's not out yet. It will be out in a bit. But if the queen, for example, in Canada, or the governor general, as her representative, were to refuse signing a, a proposed legislation into law, like that would cause a huge commotion in, in Canadian politics. That would cause huge controversy. Like, that would be, like, unheard of to say. It's happened in the past, but, um, and, and then, you know, changes were made <laughs> in response to it. But here, it's like, no, 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 it's, it's part of the system. No one would be surprised if the president said, no, nah, I don't like that, I'm not doing it. As we will see as we, as we continue on with this. By the time we get to, uh, to Hitler, because there, there was a few, there's a few presidents. We're not going to go through all the presidents, because we're interested in around the time Hitler comes into power, because... As I mentioned at the beginning, this is this is something a topic that has interested me. Like, how exactly did this occur beyond just, oh, he's here now? Because whenever I, we talk about World War II, at least in my experience, it's just kind of like, you know, end of World War One, and then boom, Nazi Germany. But there's an in-between stage. So we're, we're focusing at the end of the Weimar Republic and the, the beginning of, of Nazi Germany. Those are roughly the, the roles of, of the president and of, of the chancellor. So, like I said, the president has the power to select the chancellor and cabinet and, like I said, approve laws and all that and can kind of, like, set out what the government should focus on. But the chancellor is the one that does, like, the day-to-day stuff. Now, if you want to know what the day-to-day stuff is, I don't know 100% exactly because... We're not we're not discussing specifically the the ins and outs of the specific German government how and how it functioned, but that's all you really need to know. It's just kind of like roughly how they worked. 
So around this time, uh, Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, who was a top military commander for the German Empire during the First World War, he becomes president of the Weimar Republic. Now, this is important here because he was like head or one of the heads of the German military. And uh, like I mentioned before, when the new German state that was created, when they asked the military, can we fight, right? These are one of the people saying, no, it's not going to be possible for us to continue fighting. So remember that. So Hindenburg was, as you might imagine, him being uh, from the military, was a very conservative politician, right? So he still considered, like, Kaiser Wilhelm, like, the head of the German government, right? He would have liked to have seen the empire restored. That's how conservative this guy is. And the political climate of Germany at this time is deeply, deeply divided. This is how, this is part of the reason, this is part of the, like, the conditions that allowed someone like Hitler, uh, someone on the extreme, to kind of take hold. Because there's no, no uniformity. So basically what, what had happened is in the German parliament, in the Reichstag, there, a bunch of coalition governments had been formed. So if you look at the election history, there's, I think, off the top of my head, there's, I think, think about 10 elections in about like a 12 to 15 year period. So like from the end of the of the First World War to about when Hitler becomes chancellor and takes over in that time frame, I believe it's about 15 years or so. And in that time, there's about like 10 to 12 elections. So that's almost an election like every year. So that's how like divided the country is. So if you're in the States, like obviously there's only two parties, your government doesn't really work like that. But anywhere else, like in Canada, when you have like minority governments, this is basically what it was. Because there was no party that could take a commanding lead of the Reichstag. And then obviously when you have a majority government, you can more easily pass, pass your legislation and whatever it is your platform is that you want to get done. It's a lot easier. So because of this gridlock basically in the German parliament, it was very hard to get things done. It was hard to appoint people because, like I said, the president can appoint, chancellors can appoint, uh, cabinet, and like I said, can dissolve government. But in terms of uh, appointing things or uh, appointing people, very hard to get people approved because of the political deadlock. So people who were on the right in Germany, so people who had conservative views, this also creates conditions for someone like Hitler coming into power because even though he had extreme views, right, obviously fascist, uh, obviously anti-Semitic, right, but these conditions existed in Germany because at, at the time and in other countries in Europe too, especially the anti-Semitism. So when you, when you look at someone like von Hindenburg and then someone like Hitler, I'm like, they're not really far off in terms of their attitudes towards German nationalism and anti-Semitism. And a lot of right-leaning people at the time were also anti-Semitic. Because one of the arguments that you hear is like, well, the, the people themselves, you know, weren't. Now, I'm not saying all Germans at the time were anti-Semitic, nor did I say even if they were anti-Semitic, they didn't necessarily want something like the Holocaust to happen. But the Holocaust itself is not really the focus of this episode. As I was saying, people on the right did hold anti-Semitic views. And so Hitler was not alone. It was a common thing for right-leaning uh, political people, thinkers at the time, to kind of like lay into like the anti-Semitic angle. And so even someone like Hindenburg, 
held held those kind kind of views. Around this time, people started to question like the 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 measures that were imposed on this German state by the Allies at the end of the First World War. Basically, the 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 Treaty of Versailles that they had signed, you know, laid blame to Germany for the war as the sole like state responsible for the war and made them pay a huge amount of reparations and damages and they had to cede a bunch of territory. So this pissed off like conservative, you know, nationalistic, right-leaning Germans. And like I said, Hindenburg was one of them. And then part of the political climate at the time, there was attacks coming from the right, the political right in Germany against the political left in the sense that this is where the anti-Semitism comes in because it was kind of seen as people who are left-leaning were one, Jewish, and two, they were responsible for Germany losing the war and being in the predicament that it currently finds itself in, or at the time found itself in. Because remember when I said that the, the new German government, right, because it was a revolution that occurred, so the German state at the beginning of the war was not the same as the, the German state at the end of the war. So the point of view had to become that this new government the one that created the Weimar Republic that we're now talking about was responsible for the German defeat. It's called like the, the great betrayal or being stabbed in the back, right? So people on the right were propagating this idea that Germany would have won the war if they weren't stabbed by the back by people on the left who were like communists, who were Jewish, right? It was a conspiracy to like reduce the power of Germany by, by these people who are bad actors towards the German state. I'm not saying they're bad actors, but people on the right would categorize them as being bad actors towards the German state. And signing this surrender, this armistice, this Treaty of Versailles, basically blaming Germany for everything. And like I said, all the restrictions that were placed on the German state following the conclusion of the First World War. And this is something that Hindenburg himself testify to when when the any because you know there's like committees and like commissions looking into like exactly what happened how did we lose the war kind of thing and that's kind of the position that he took so it's not far off from other you know right-leaning conservative figures this idea that like jews and stuff had betrayed them because at at the beginning i said that the, the new government asked the military leaders hey and military leaders would have you know included hindenburg they said hey and we continue fighting. And at the time, they said, no, we cannot because we don't have the men, we don't have the allies, and we don't have the supplies. So it's a no-go. But now, later, like 10 years later-ish, it's a different tune. Now it's saying that, ah, we could have won, but we were betrayed, right? We had the spirit. We had all the conditions that we needed to continue the war, but this new government came in and betrayed us. They stabbed us in the back. And this was tied to left-wing peoples, and it was tied to Jews. It was like foreigners. I'm not saying they're foreigners, but that's how they would be portrayed by people on the right. And that's kind of what creates or lends itself to this anti-Semitic feeling, I guess, however you want to describe it, in the air, in the, in, the, in the climate, in the political climate of Germany at this time. This is how it kind of like starts to take hold. Because people on the right are trying to justify how, how did we lose this war, right? If we're so great, because anytime you have like a nationalistic, we're so great, we, we're better than everyone else. But then you lose, right? you have to find an excuse, you have to find 
some kind of justification as to, well, if we're so great, why do we lose? Oh, why do we lose? It's because of these left-leaning communist Jewish peoples that betrayed us. They, they, they overthrew the government and they're responsible for our defeat and what we're going through right now. Even though that's not what happened. That is not an accurate representation of what happened, but it started it's these kind of like things that started taking hold, these narratives that started springing up during this time. So you could say it was a disinformation campaign coming from right-leaning slash conservative slash nationalistic Germans at the time. Because, because it, things were so deeply divided in the Reichstag, they started like arguing over like stupid stuff. <laughs> this is an example here from, th this is just to highlight how divided things had become because this is what they're actually discussing as like government policy and stuff. So this is just from like Wikipedia if you read about if you read about this topic there. So one of the governments during this time period was toppled by a dispute over flying the old imperial flag alongside the Weimar color. So the new, the new flag basically with the old flag, which symbolically downgraded the republic. So that's what they're arguing about. That's how divided things are. It's like, well, should we have the old German flag fly with the new German flag? Is that good? Is that not good? Like, that's what toppled the government in this system, this new constitution that had been set up. It's like, what? Like, what, what are we talking about? That's how divided it is. They're bickering over, over stupid stuff that doesn't really serve anyone. <laughs> so Hindenburg was, was the, the president at this time, and he, he was elected president twice. The first election, or his first term, he was fine. Everything was like relatively okay. At the end of his first term, he was like, you know, ready to, to retire because like he had served a long military career. He did a little bit of the, the politics, right? And then he was like, oh, no, it, it's time. But this around, around, around this time, this is when Hitler starts becoming more well-known, more popular in the scene, in the political scene. And so during the second election, or, well, not second election ever, but second for Hindenburg running uh, again as president, there was a fear among people on the right that Hitler would win this one. And they're like, Hindenburg, like, yo, we need you. We need you to run again because we don't want Hitler in power. Because remember, 37%, 35%, whatever it was, was not huge support. It wasn't like 60% vote. Uh, for the Nazi party and, 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 and for Hitler. So Hindenburg goes again. He wins, but bar well, not barely, but it was, it's a close call. But he ends up winning. But as I said, the Reichstag is still divided. Now, even before the rise of the Nazis, it was divided. But in this last election, the Nazis' numbers went up and other political parties, their numbers went down a little bit, but it still was not a consensus one way or the other. So it's still very deeply divided. During this, like, uh, the second term, there's, like, a, a slight change in how the government would work, basically. Because of all, like, the divisions in the German political system with the German parties, uh, a change was suggested so that they could kind of get, like, stuff done more easily without needing approval from the Reichstag. So when you need the parliament to approve your decisions for certain things, and no one's getting along, obviously it grinds everything down to a halt. So Hindenburg had a bunch of advisors, right? He had four people who were on like his little advising like committee, and they were called the Camarilla. I assume that's uh, German for something. I don't know what it means, but it's their little clique. And so they kind of like, 
you know, could could get things passed on to Hindenburg because now Hindenburg, he's like he's winding down and it could be argued whether or not Hindenburg was there completely for the end of this, this second term. So what they had suggested was it was called the, the 254853 formula. And this was to help move things along more easily and for the president to, to do his duties and to move things along in the government uh, at a faster pace than what was going on before. So basically, this used a bunch of articles in the German Constitution that made it easier for the president to do the things that he wanted to do. So basically, Article 25 of this constitution allowed the president to dissolve the Reichstag, which I said is the German parliament. Article 48 allowed the president to sign emergency bills into law without consent of the Reichstag. However, the Reichstag could cancel any law passed by Article 48 by a simple majority vote within 60 days of its passage. And then Article 53 allowed the president to appoint the chancellor. So basically, this formula here allowed the president to dissolve the Reichstag. While the Reichstag is dissolved, the president can pass emergency laws without needing the approval of the Reichstag. And now, finally, the president can appoint a chancellor. So basically, the president can do all his appointing while the Reichstag is dissolved. Now, it says that uh, the Reichstag can cancel any of these laws passed by Article 48 with a simple majority vote within 60 days. But nowhere in the Constitution does it say that you have to call the Reichstag back if they are dissolved at the time that these laws are passed, right? So it's one of the things that was not like foreseen when whoever came up with the rules of this Constitution, right? Because you would assume people are going to act in good faith and do what they're supposed to do. But that's not always the case. So with this little formula here, it's like, well, I can get the things that I want done without any kind of secondary approval. And it's this change here that basically lets Hitler get into power. Because if you did not know, if you're not familiar, when Hitler wanted to be in control of the government, he wanted to make sure he did it all legally, right? He didn't want it to be a military coup. He didn't want, you know, to take it by force, let's say. Because I don't think the people would have accepted that, right? There'd probably be a stronger pushback to someone coming in being like, hey, I'm taking over now. So because of this approach and this small oversight and how this constitution was put together, this allowed, the way things ended up being, this allowed Hitler to take control by legal means. So even though this, this method allowed the president to govern a certain way it didn't allow you to do like everything but it did allow you to appoint the chancellor so during during hindenburg's second term like he went through like i don't want to say like 50 chancellors although it wasn't that extreme but it was a lot and the last chancellor that he appointed was hitler after hitler asking a bunch of times to be appointed hindenburg finally gave in and this was to get things moving right to 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 govern because if you if you don't make things uh if you don't appoint you know people into roles into cabinet into chancellors right the the functions of the government aren't 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 going to happen so hitler gets appointed in this manner this is how hitler actually comes to power so because of this because of this little workaround it's never it's never voted on by the reichstag right and 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 hitler and, and and hindenburg did not get along they did not like each other but Hindenburg did it he appointed Hitler because I used because like he's at the end 
of his career. And actually, he dies like in office, right? So he, he's kind of at the end of his life too, and he's just like, I'm I'm tired of I'm tired of like fighting and arguing. You know, I I'm here like I'm president. You know, my 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 job is to you know see that the government functions, and it's like that's not happening. So I this is a way to like appease party slash government leaders because at this point this is where the nazis this is where the 37 percent comes in in the last like parliamentary election nazis like have one of the larger chunks or percentages of the seats in the reichstag not a majority but they have enough where they're like one of one of the big parties now even though they only have like 35 37 percent so in order to get things done, it's like, because we can't keep having election after election, eventually people get tired of that. So it's not, that's not working. So it's like, okay, to kind of make this work, I'll finally appoint Hitler as chancellor. So that is basically how he comes into power. And then once Hitler is the chancellor, he passes, or the government eventually passes the Enabling Act, which is a bunch of like emergency laws that were signed into existence and because of this like formula I had mentioned before, there's no check on how these laws function. There's no check by, by the Reichstag to approve or disapprove these changes. So basically at this point, with these new emergency powers granted, like this gives Hitler like the power that he's wanted, right? This gives him the control that he's wanted. And there's no kind of secondary approval into this because you can pass emergency laws. And then, well, once the Enabling Act comes in, obviously you kind of like, change this altogether but there's no, nothing to challenge once it's passed because it gives him like basically emergency powers forever <laughs> the only real check on hitler's power at this point is hindenburg himself because the president can appoint but also take away the chancellorship so that's the only person that hitler is is accountable to and so during this point he anytime he's in hindenburg's presence he's like the most because like i said these guys don't like each other but at, at this point hitler's like the nicest most kind to him you know you know anything you want like it's all good you know and in any kind of like public appearance hitler always made sure like to be by hindenburg's side because hindenburg i guess was decently liked at this time so so that's basically how it happened right that's how hitler gets in so so he gets appointed now like any like i said anytime he's in hindenburg's presence very polite, very nice, very kind. Oh, you need something? You need, you need, you know, you need a hot tea? Okay, I'll get you a hot tea. It's no, it's no problem. You, you sit down and relax. It's all good. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of all that. I mean, that's basically the attitude that Hitler took. Like I said, prior, I mean, either at this point, they still don't like each other. But like Hitler was just like, I will, I will be as nice as possible until Hindenburg dies. Well, Hitler didn't plan, plan his death, but Hindenburg eventually dies. And then that was the last check on the office of the chancellor. And then so when Hindenburg dies, uh, Hitler's office basically merges the two. So it becomes a president and the chancellor combined office. And it would have stayed that way. Well, it did stay that way until Hitler, you know, when, when Germany is about to lose the Second World War, Hitler, before he kills himself, he gives a line of succession, right? He appoints someone to be president and then someone to be chancellor. So then they, they kind of separate. And then in the in the following years after the Second World War and the new German political structure, I think they have a president or something similar. Now the chancellor is the one who was like the, the head leader, stuff like that. But that's basically how it happened, right? So it's a lot of political deadlock 
and a small loophole in German law and the German constitution that kind of allowed for someone like Hitler to take control, at least in the way that he wanted to take control. Now, is it possible a coup could have happened? Sure. But if, if, if it wasn't written with this small oversight in how the law was constructed, at least in terms of like a legal sense, perhaps we don't have what actually happened, how everything unfolded. Perhaps it's different, right? Because in this manner in which Hitler is appointed, right, or potentially any, any chancellor, it doesn't have to be Hitler specifically, there is no secondary check on that, right? It doesn't have to be approved because of this loophole. So who knows how things would have turned out if, in fact, that small oversight, that small loophole did not exist. So sometimes that shows you, you know, how, how things can have like the biggest of consequences, even though it seems like a tiny thing. You might never have imagined that because of this tiny loophole, this is the outcome that we get. Although I don't know how different things would have been because on the right, like I said, there was a lot of anti-Semitism already. But through this legal basis, this is how the Nazis take control. Because like I said, once the Enabling Act is passed, that kind of gave Hitler, that gave the Chancellor sweeping powers over the government. So we'll, we'll end it there for this episode. It's probably been long enough. So if you're interested in history, you're interested in this kind of thing, I would recommend looking into it yourself, looking into the Weimar Republic, looking into how it ended, looking into Hindenburg, uh, how it started to like the Republic itself right at the end of the First World War. Cause it's something, like I said, we don't talk about, we gloss over it. It's like, okay, when the First World War breaks out, trench warfare, you know, machine guns, uh, beginning of tanks and planes a little bit, right? Then we get to the end of the war, you know, Treaty of Versailles. That's all we ever learned. Treaty of Versailles, obviously Hitler and other German nationals, although I know Hitler wasn't German, but still, He's still part of the German nationalistic movement. Upset about this. Upset about the sanctions put on them. And then, boom, we get Nazi Germany. We, you know, you get the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And then we get the start of World War II when uh, Germany invades Poland in 1939. Until, obviously, the end in 1945. Right? But we never look at, at least I haven't, and I don't think in the public conscience, whenever it's talked about, we never really get into like, well, how did that happen exactly? It's just kind of like, boom, boom, boom. This is what happened. So that's a little look into that historical moment. So if you want to read more, Weimar Republic, interesting time, I think, to see the politics of that time, how it all played out. I have been your podcast person, Pablo, also known as JPav, also known as Pav, also known as Pavi. And this has been the end of the Republic. So stay tuned for an all new, all different episode of Aim for the Bushes coming out soon. Thank you so much for listening. Give us a rating. Give us a like if you're on a platform that has those options. Everyone, please stay safe. Peace.